I'm going to be talking to you guys about problems. I know you guys got really sad really quick. Um, so if you put that first slide up there, this is, um, this is a question my dad used to ask me, and my dad was somewhat sarcastically annoying, um, as I have the tendency at times to be, um, though try not to annoy anyone with my sarcasm. But he would ask me the question, how high is up? Does anyone know the answer? How much do you want it to be? No, no, it is. He, he would always give me the answer. It's twice as far as halfway. And I'm like, that's not an answer. I, I, don't, I don't have anywhere to go for there. Um, but I, we got some different problems. So that's one problem. But here's, here's another problem. How many of you guys can guess this? Six. I got a quick answer. That's excellent. Very simple math. You have a problem. You have a variable. And you solve for X. Next problem. A little more difficult. You have to do some backwards math, kind of flip it around. Does anyone know the answer? Eight. Very good. Got some math people out there. That is exciting. Now we have this next problem. Can anyone give me the answer to this? You see, in math, it's, it's, it's difficult when you have more than one variable. Um, but when you have no numbers and no framework to go for, this is an unsolvable problem. You can't solve it because you have nothing for which to go for. And so today we are going to be talking about solving an unsolvable problem, lessons from a frustrated prophet. We're going to be in the book of Habakkuk. Um, so turn your Bibles, if you can, to the book of Habakkuk. If you have never heard of the book of Habakkuk, that is okay. He is a small minor prophet, not that he was a small man, but that um, God revealed a small portion of Scripture to him, and he doesn't have a large book like Daniel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. Um, but we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk, so if you go to Jonah, and you do find Jonah, it's Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. And it has, it has that double K on the end, so it's Habakkuk, and you've got to kind of get a sound in order to really pronounce it well. And so we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk. And the background for Habakkuk, Habakkuk is placed in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He was a contemporary of them. He was alive around that same time frame that they were getting prophetic visions and getting words from the Lord. And so you have him alongside with Daniel. While Habakkuk was doing his ministry, Daniel was taken into captivity at that same time. So you have him in, within, that same, um, within that same time frame as those contemporaries. And the situation is that Israel at this time is fallen away from God. They have chosen to disobey God in multiple areas, one particular area which we will, we will kind of mention. But they are living in sin, worshiping idols. They are not following God. And so Habakkuk starts out, and he, he communicates his frustration. He communicates where he's at. Um, but before we get into God's word, let's pray real quick. Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you so much for, for all that you do. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who will illuminate and open our eyes to what we need to see. Lord, I, I don't pray that everyone here will understand that they will um, be able to apply every aspect of today's truth to their life, Lord, but that you would have them grab a hold of one thing, 
one thing, Lord, that they can clearly apply to their life, that you would remove distractions, and that you would clearly speak through me, as this is your truth, and your truth only. In your name I pray, amen. Um, So we hear Habakkuk's first complaint, but step one in really solving an unsolvable problem, step one is pouring out your heart to the Lord. So that's what we see from Habakkuk chapter 1 verses or chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. Habakkuk says, "How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed. There's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous. So that justice has become perverted. And so Habakkuk's problem that he communicates to God is, God, why aren't you doing something? He attacks God's inactivity from his perspective. God, why aren't you doing something? He pours out his heart. He shares his emotions, his frustration, because he sees Israel living in sin, and he's broken by this. He's like, God, they're, they're, they're wicked. They're, they're, they need, they're your children, though, so they need to get spanked. They, they need some discipline. We need to put them, get them put back on the right path. And if you do it this way, this way, and you make this work, they're going to be okay. God, why can't you just do something? They can't live like this. Have we ever looked and looked at situations in our own life, and we're like, God, you know what? If, if obstacle one, two, three removed out of the way, and you did this and this and this, everything's going to work out fine because I know this is your plan. And you kind of tell God the best way to do things. You kind of have that dialogue. Well, Habakkuk's saying, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? And so God, as gracious as he is, he answers Habakkuk. And he answers not with inactivity, he answers with activity. And he communicates in verses 5 through 10. We're not going to read them, but he communicates in verses 5 through 10 of the judgment and suffering that he is going to bring in the lives of of Israel and the lives of Judah and to them who are being disobedient. Because you see, they deserve this. They deserve this judgment. And the worst possible judgment is not going to be uh, the destruction of their crops. It's not going to be even the destruction of their walls and the temple. The worst possible judgment is going to be captivity. Because they, what, uh, probably a thousand years before, around 14-something B.C., they, um, they were in captivity with the Egyptians, and they, they got brought out of it. God brought them out of captivity. The Passover, all these things that they celebrate, they celebrate God taking them out of captivity. And now as a judgment of their sin, God is now going to allow the Babylonians to put them into captivity. And, and something to look at is that God can use something unholy to bring about holy discipline. God can use something unholy. I don't know how he does it. It doesn't make sense to me, but he can use something unholy 
like the Babylonians who are wicked, 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 wicked. And he can bring about holy judgment, holy, righteous discipline. Um, John MacArthur, I was watching and listening to a podcast, and he said that pain precedes glory. And, and maybe a, a better word for our understanding, maybe the word glory would not work. Maybe pain precedes maturity. If we're going to be mature as Christians, then we have to be disciplined. If the Israelites were going to be mature, then there was going to have to be discipline. Now, you know, there are many tools for discipline, right? As parents, there are many tools. You got the classic, you got the hand, right? Get, get, give him a spanking, right? Multiple tools for spanking. You got, you got the hand. You got, uh, when I was actually in a, uh, I was in a Christian school in Tampa, and in kindergarten, the principal had a paddle. And back in the day, 30-something years ago, I know that dates me, but 30-something years ago, uh, back in the day, they had a paddle. And there are two types of paddles. You have the solid wood paddles. Then... You have the, the, the people that are thinking to make discipline worse, and those are paddles with holes in them. Oh, yeah, you know it. You, you, you've been there. You've been there. But those paddles didn't scare me. What scared me was a switch. That's right. And you know why? Because there wasn't anything you could look at on the wall to say, okay, there's this paddle of discipline. I need to watch out for that. The switch is anything. I mean, it could be... It could be a stick that's outside because you always want to go outside to get the switch because the, the anticipation of discipline is really where, 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 where the discipline lies. It's not necessarily, it's the anticipation of what she's going to come back with. What is mom going to come back with when she goes outside to get a switch? This has got to be bad. It could be a weed. My, my, my worst fear is that she was going to find some St. Augustine grass that kind of zigzags back and forth with those big knots of grass on it. And on my legs. That, that was the worst thing. And so, you know, when, when you look at the, when you look in God's word, when it talks about discipline, discipline is painful. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, no discipline is enjoyable. And it's, it's almost like the writer of Hebrews wants to say, duh, hello guys. No discipline is enjoyable. You know, the people listening to her are like, yeah, we get it. While it's happening, it's painful, but Afterward, there is a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. And so because God loves his people, because he loves us, because you as parents love your children, you discipline them. Because you want them to have a harvest of right living. You don't want them to go their own way and not the way of righteousness. And so there must be discipline. And this is what's happening here in the first part of Habakkuk. God is communicating, Habakkuk, I'm doing something that you don't know about. I didn't clue you in. By the way, God God has a habit of not doing that in our lives. Okay? He doesn't clue us in as to what's coming up in the future. And there's a reason for that. We're going to talk about it. But discipline was important. And from Habakkuk's perspective... He doesn't understand why God's going to answer this way. Why are you going to have the Chaldeans come and take us away from our home? How is that a good type of discipline? And so he, it's almost as if he is in this, he, he asks his question, he steps out there, and then God responds, and it turns into like quicksand, and he's starting to sink. He can't handle this problem. He can't handle it. He can't understand why God's going to do it this way. And so we find in verse 12 what he does is he changes 
his perspective. Instead of focusing on what he doesn't know, which is why God's doing this, why he's going to have some unholy tool bring about holy judgment, instead of him focusing on that, he focuses on what he does know. And so that is really the step two. You pour out your heart to God. There's nothing wrong with pouring out your heart and communicating your frustration. God wants that. He wants you to own those things. Those are your feelings. But that's not where it stops. If that's where it stops, then you're wallowing and you're just not going to go anywhere. There's not going to be maturity in that direction. So the next step is being able to focus on what you know is true, which is who God is. And so look at verse 12. It says in the ESV, it says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So Habakkuk changes his focus. He steps out of the quicksand back onto what he knows is sure. And he starts communicating and reminding God who he is. Really reminding himself who God is. And so he starts out, you're from everlasting. He communicates, God, you are eternal. You're never going to end. You've always been there. Then he says, Lord. And this Lord with all caps is not just Lord as in ruler, but it is God's personal name that he uses more than twice than any other name in the Old Testament, more than just God, more than the the regular Lord as far as a master or a ruler. It is God's personal name. It means he is the self-existent one. When he said, I am that I am, I am the self-existent one. No one created me, and I want to have a personal relationship with you. And so back at rests on that. He focuses, oh Lord, my God. And then he communicates, God, you're the Holy One. You're righteous. You're sinless. You are perfection. That's the standard that I need to focus on. I don't need to focus on how wicked everyone is. I need to focus on your holiness, that I need to align with that. Then he says, oh rock. He communicates that God is all powerful. God is mighty. God is solid. He's not going anywhere. Even though things seem to be uneasy all around Habakkuk, he communicates and focuses, God, you are my rock. Oh, rock, you have established them. And then he communicates, we shall not die. And and to really understand how he's talking about God's quality with that phrase, we shall not die, it has to do with the fact that God has promised something. He's reminding God, you promise that we are going to have descendants that are as numerable as, as unnumerable as the sands of the seashore, and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So he starts telling God, you promised that you're not going to wipe us out. You promised this. God, you are faithful. You are faithful. You will keep your promise. One of the promises that God has given us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, is that no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with that temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. Isn't that a great promise? No matter what what we're going through, God's going to make a way out of that temptation. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is, is a trial, but a temptation, something to tempt us to sin, something that, that would lure us to do wrong. God's going to make a way out of that. He's faithful. 
We can trust him. And so Habakkuk focuses on those things. He sets on that rock. And then we come to verse 13, and here's what he does. He changes it up. He's like, okay, I opened my mouth first. I didn't get the answer I was looking for. Maybe I should start with this tactic, focus on maybe more of God who you are, and maybe that'll justify my questioning. Because he's still wanting to get those answers from God. So Habakkuk 1.13, it says, But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? What's he doing here? He's, he's playing this comparison game. He's saying, God, but you're holy. You're righteous. I mean, and it's almost like he, it's not that he's putting it to God, but he's almost trying to say, from my perspective, God, it looks like you're winking at evil. Like you got something going on with evil and you're a part of what evil is happening. And he's communicating, God, you're going to be silent because these people are more right. These people are, are less righteous than they. And so he said, are you going to swallow up people more righteous than those who are going to swallow us up? He's playing that comparison game. And when we do that, we, we assume, we make the assumption that we are righteous in and of ourselves. That we don't deserve judgment. That we don't deserve God's discipline for the sin in our life. And we're like, I mean, have we ever asked this question maybe about someone at work or someone that we come in contact with, a volunteer position, anything that we interact with in our lives? Have we ever said, God, why are you, why are you letting this go on? Why, why are you allowing this person who is sinning, who is wicked, who is trying to devise to destroy me or raise themselves above me, why are you allowing this to continue? I'm better than them. We say that, don't we? We think about that. We put ourselves in that comparison instead of really truly looking at our life and saying, you know, God, I am equally wicked with them on my own. I'm equally to pray. There's no good that's in me outside of you, God. And so he's playing this comparison game. And in verses 14 through 17, Habakkuk says to God, God, are you going to let people who are more worse than us I know more worse. That may not, may not sound like good grammar. But that's what he's saying. More worse than us. Discipline your people. And so he goes on into verse 16 and 17, and he communicates, then they will worship, talking about the Babylonians. He says, then they will worship their nets, burn incense in front of them. These nets are the gods that have made us rich, they will claim. Will you let them get away with this forever? He asked God outright, are you going to let this keep going on? Are you going to let this keep going on? And he makes a comparison that God, we worship you and you're the true God. They worship what, what they're using to describe as a metaphor that they're fishermen and their nets is their power that has brought all of these nations under their control. And they're worshiping their power. They're worshiping themselves, their own ability to accomplish what they can but God, we're worshiping you. You're our God. How can you let this continue? How can you let this go on? And from Habakkuk's perspective, it appears as if the Babylonians are going to get away from their sin. How many of you hate lions? 
You hate waiting in line, hate standing in lines. Well, you know, our culture absolutely hates lines. Uh, we have fast food because we don't want to necessarily have to prepare our food at our home. I struggle with that at times. You got call-ahead seating, right? So if you want to get some nice food, you want to call ahead because then you can walk in and you're like, yeah, I was here before you even though you didn't know it. I was here before you. And, and you, you like not having to wait in those lines. We have prime shipping. You don't want things to have to wait five, seven business days for them to get in. What do you do? Prime it. And you even, I, even, I even have now on Amazon Prime, I have a Prime Day. I can pick my own Prime Day. To where if I order something, it's always going to be free for that Prime Day. It could be next day, Prime Day. Awesome. It's great. I don't have to wait in line. I don't have to wait in line for that. How many of you have been to Disney before? Recently, not recently, but it's been probably within the last 10 years, they have these things called fast passes. So you don't have to wait in line. You don't have to wait in line. You can do that. They even have apps now. Duncan, one of my favorite apps, my wife's favorite app that, she, that we, we enjoy. And I enjoy the, um, the ordering through the app, right? Because then what you do is you don't wait in line in the drive-thru. You order on the app. You tell them when you're going to be there, and you click, like, right when you're going to be there. You click it that you're there, and then you can walk through the store, and everyone else is waiting in line, right? You're walking through the store. And then you, you're, you're, you're just standing there at the front of the line. Everyone's looking at you like, what, what are you doing? You're skipping the line. And then they have, oh, here you go, sir. Here's your thing. And you get your thing, and you just smile and walk back like, you own this. This was awesome. So as a culture, we have so many things that we don't like to wait for. We don't like to wait in line. But let's look at Habakkuk's response in chapter 2 when he asked God this question. Will you let them get away with this forever? Let's turn to chapter 2, verse 1. This is what he says. So, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post, and I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Now, that's in the NLT. In the NASB, it has a a different portion at the bottom. It, It translates it a little bit differently, and there may be some nuance in the Hebrew that I don't understand. But when I look at the NASB, if you can go to the next slide, the NASB says, I will stand on my guard post, the station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he, that is the Lord, will speak to me and how I may reply when I'm reproved. And so I thought that was interesting that Habakkuk's like, first off, he communicates the guard post. And in that day, if you wanted to get any information quickly, you were a guard on the watchtower. And a lot of prophets would use this terminology as if they are waiting for God. They want to be as close to God and as close to the message as possible. And so if you're on that guard tower, you can see any messenger coming. You can see any enemy coming. You got the best perch of the whole place. And so that's what Habakkuk is saying. God, I want to be placed and positioned in the best possible way to get your answer to my questions. I want to get your answer. And so step one is to pour out your heart to God. Step two is to, yes, focus on what you know is true. But step three is to wait. Step three is to wait. And so Habakkuk says, I will wait to see what the Lord says to me when I'm reproved. And, and how I may respond, how I may reply when I'm reproved. And so it's almost as if he's waiting for an answer 
wrapped in a rebuke. Like God is going to say, he's almost saying to God, God, I know that I'm opening my mouth again. I know I'm probably saying all sorts of stuff that aren't going to contradict you. I know I'm probably wasting my time, and you're going to tell me how foolish I was. So I'm just going to wait here and respond to your, your verbal spanking to me. And so he stands there and he waits. We hate waiting. We hate waiting. We want it now. We want it now. But God will answer. So we wait. God will answer. Um, it said that it is not that God is not that we don't get answers from God, but it's that we don't get them when we think we have to have them. And that's such a hard thing for us to grapple with. Is that it's not that God doesn't answer; He doesn't answer when we want the answer, and many times He doesn't answer the way we think we need to be answered. He wants us to wait, but God does answer. God does answer. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 20, God makes his answer and he communicates that he will not tolerate sin no matter whose sins they are. They're not going to get away with it, Habakkuk. You don't need to stress about this. They're not going to get away with it. And and in in chapter 2, verse 2, if you actually read it there, I'm not going to read it or on the screens, but it's almost like God says, Habakkuk, I want you to write this in such big letters in such a clear way that no one's going to miss it. That this is going to be super clear for everyone to get. That you're going to understand it. That everyone else is going to be able to understand it as well. Because I have an answer for you. I have an answer for you. And God's answer is that he is going to bring judgment on the Babylonians fiercely. And so in chapter 2, verses 4, we actually get this roller coaster dialogue that God communicates as an answer as he communicates as an answer to Habakkuk, he starts on a high note. He says, look at the proud. They trust in themselves. And their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Starts on that high note. The righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. And so when you're studying Scripture, it's very important that you take Scripture and you turn it into a question to yourself. Because Scripture is not meant to just be in one ear and out the other. It's meant to be something that, that smolders, that sizzles, that meditates in your heart as you focus on what it means. And so one way to meditate on this particular passage would be to ask the question, am I living by faith or do I put more trust in myself to accomplish things in my life? Do I put more trust in myself or am I living by my faithfulness to God. Does my life say, well, this is even, this is even greater because we can sometimes say it with our words. Oh yeah, I trust God. But does my life say that I trust God? Or is it just the words from my mouth? And my life demonstrates something different. These are questions that we have to ask ourselves when it says the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. They are not going to trust themselves, as the verse says. Their lives are not going to be crooked. They're going to focus and trust on God. And so in verses 4 through 13, God, God communicates why he's going to destroy them. We're not going to read it. But when he communicates why he's going to destroy them, that he's going to destroy them because of their greed, their idolatry, their pride, their murder. They're going to get it. 
It's okay, Habakkuk. They're going to get it. I'm going to judge them, and here's why. I didn't miss anything. Sometimes we feel like God misses certain pieces in our life. You're like, did you not see this? It was right here. And you're like, you feel like that God's not doing something. And so you're pointing out those things. God communicates to Habakkuk, yes, I saw it. Their greed, their murder, their idolatry, their pride, I get it. They're wicked. I see it. And they're going to be judged for it. And so we start out with the righteous will live by faith. And then we, we, we swoop down this roller coaster. Judgment, destruction. And then God comes back up. Communicates something that's really cool. It says in verse 14, For as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of God. Ask yourself, do you, do I, have a healthy awareness of God's presence in my life? Do I have an awareness in my life, when I live, where I go, that I'm aware of God's presence? Because it says, the whole earth will be filled with the awareness of the glory of God. Do I have that awareness? Does that awareness provoke me to live for Christ? Or if I have a lack of awareness, am I distracted by the things of this world? Ask yourself, introspect, where do I stand in this awareness? Can I improve? So we're on the mountaintop, right? Awareness of God. Great truth to challenge us with. And then God takes another dive. Destruction, destruction, destruction. He's going to destroy them. He's going to wipe out the Babylonians because they are wicked. And then it picks up in verse 18. And it says, What good is an idol carved by man or a cast image that God deceives you? How foolish to trust your own creation, a God that can't even talk. Talking about the Babylonians. What sorrow awaits those who say to wooden idols, Wake up and save us. To speechless stone images, you say, rise up and teach us. Can an idol tell you what to do? They may be overladen with gold and silver, but they are lifeless inside. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. That last verse, he communicates again, the Lord, the self-existent personal God, he is in his holy temple He is the only one deserving of worship. Not our social media posts, not our smartphones, not our technology, not the position that I have at work, not the family that I love deserve worship because God is the one who's in his holy temple. Yahweh is in his holy temple. He's the only one who's deserving of worship And I like this part that God says, let all the earth be silent before him. He's basically saying, everyone, be quiet. Nothing that you say holds a candle to who I am as God. He's saying, God is God. They are not. I am not. When when God is communicating to Habakkuk, Habakkuk is saying, I'm not. I'm not God. God, you are God. The Lord is in his holy temple. And I love that but. I feel like the buts of the Bible, I know it sounds silly, but the buts of the Bible are very important. The buts take us from, flip, flip to that last verse. 
that, that previous verse. It takes us from dead things that have no hope, no life, no salvation, but takes us to a Lord who is worthy of worship, who is able to save. It's that flip. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, but God who is rich in mercy. That but changes things. And so God answers, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And and it's almost as if when you go to chapter 3, it's almost as if Habakkuk has no other words of questions anymore. He's done trying to question God. Now, he decides that all I can do is sing. Have you guys ever been there? To where you have no more questions, no more thoughts of your own, and you just need to sing a worship song? You just need to sing something to God to let out those emotions, let out those feelings, and resolve that God is God and you're not. Because there are unsolvable problems in our life. And so what Habakkuk does is he starts to sing a song versus verses 1 through 15, he sings this song about how awesome God is, how mighty God is, how strong he is, how he controls creation and creation does what he wants. He has angels and swords and majesty. And he's awesome. Again, focusing on who God is. And when he focuses on who God is, he has a response. If you go to chapter 3, verse 16, right here on the screen. It says at the beginning of chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, there at the beginning of verse 16, it says, I hear, he's saying everything that he's heard from God, as well as his own song talking about how awesome God is. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. He has a physical response. He has thinking about how awesome God is, how terrible God is in his majesty and power. He gets weak at the knees. He gets sick to his stomach. He can't control it. He's so in awe of God, fearful knowing how powerful God is and how God has answered him, knowing what God is going to do, what God is able to do. He shares his feelings. But, you see, it says yet. That's a fancy but, basically. Okay, so it says, yet, next slide, yet I will wait quietly on the day of trouble. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who will invade us. And so what we see when it says, I will wait quietly, is that Habakkuk's waiting is marked by patience. He says, I will wait quietly. When when we tend to be in those lines that we don't like so much, when when we start to whine or complain, no, I wasn't looking at you. I wasn't looking at my wife. No, not at all. Um, Because I struggle with it too, especially if it's a hot line outside. I don't do too well with the heat. I'm just saying. Um, But when we do not wait quietly, we tend not to be patient. We whine, we complain, we gripe, we get agitated, and then we start focusing on the problem again. Man, why do I have to be here? Why is this happening? And you start going back to the first part, and you start pouring out and mulling over the problem again. But Habakkuk said, I will wait quietly. 
I will quietly wait for the Lord. For, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble that will come upon the people who will invade us. His, pay, his waiting is marked by patience. No whining while you wait. No whining while you wait. But his, pay, his waiting is also marked by worship. I find that interesting. His waiting for something horrible to happen is marked by worship. His waiting for God to answer and fix this unsolvable problem is marked by worship. Verse 18, it says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even if my health fails. Oh, I'm sorry. Even if I lose my job and my income disappears. Even if I miss an opportunity that would have been able to really help my family or help me move along in life. Or maybe I get placed in a position to where I'm under a person that says that they very clearly don't like salespeople. Maybe that's just me. Um, But we are all placed in different things and things that happen. I mean, these are serious things. Cancer is a serious thing. A child being wayward and walking away from God is a serious thing. These are problems we can't solve. And yet Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's look at verse 17, because he he does tell us why. He says, even if the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now it says take joy. I like that. It's like what Teresa was saying this morning. Is that you can't just, you can't just expect to stumble over it. Stumble over this worship. Stumble over this confidence in God. Stumble over this joy. It's not going to fall in your lap. When you are going through something that's an unsolvable problem, that you can't fix. And it says to take joy, you have to make a choice and take it. I'm going to be joyful because of the God of my salvation. Not because I got it, but because he does. And I'm going to take that joy. And I'm going to demonstrate that in my life. I'm going to demonstrate patience as I wait. I'm going to demonstrate worship as I wait. And then he communicates that his waiting, it's very easy to see that his waiting is marked by confidence. His waiting is marked by confidence. It says in Habakkuk 3.19, The sovereign Lord is my strength. The sovereign Lord is my strength. It's marked by confidence. It says the sovereign Lord is my strength. The one who's in charge. I can trust him. He's my strength. I don't have the strength. I can't make it through. If it was up to me, I would be in step one, and I would live there. Because your wickedness enjoys to waller in the frustration. Your depravity loves to waller in that because it makes you feel good to waller. That's that's where we want to be as humans. But God says, no, you need to trust who I am, focus on who I am, and then you need to wait, and your waiting needs to be marked by patience, by worship, and by confidence. It says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. And I always wondered why he, he threw this last phrase in here. 
He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. Now, I had to do some research because, I mean, everything else seems to be lining up really good in the book. And then he throws this curveball of adding an animal metaphor at the end. I don't know if that's normal for a prophet to do, but he throws this out there. And so I had to really search and figure out what type of deer is he talking about? Is he talking about, you know, a 10-point buck that's in the forest somewhere in Alabama? Or is he talking about something else? And it turns out that in Judea, in the deserts of Judea and in that surrounding area, you have an animal called an ibex. And it's interesting. Um, you, you can actually check it out on Netflix at the uh, planet earth now i'm not saying that i condone everything that it communicates because it communicates things in millions of years which we know that's not true that's evolutional and that's not that's not our god however when it does demonstrate what these animals that god may do you can actually see it um but the ibex is this this small goat-like antelope mountain goat but it's small lanky looks like a goat it was probably described as a deer here and it lives in that area, and it can jump, it can walk on a cliff that is, we would consider a sheer cliff, because it only needs about one inch of tread. Thousands of feet below, hundreds of feet below, it could fall to its death, and yet it's able to jump, it's able to land, it's able to run away from predators just by hopping up the sides of this mountain. I mean, it's absolutely crazy what it can do. And Habakkuk, I almost think of him looking back at the beginning when he was questioning God and dealing with that quicksand. And he was frustrated with the fact that he can't wrestle with this. He can't, he can't grapple with this. It's beyond him. It's not secure. It's not safe. And he's thinking about that deer that he saw. He's thinking about this truth that God will make me sure-footed as a deer, as this, this ibex that can be secured. Not because the ibex can do anything because he has any special abilities. God made him that way. And it's not that you can live securely on your own, that you have any talents, have any abilities, have any pedigree or financial wealth or security in and of yourself that you can live securely and sure-footed. But that trust in God leads to a life that is sure-footed. That even though it appears as if you only have an inch of clearance from life or death, from success or failure, trust in God allows you to be sure-footed within that small margin that from our perspective looks hopeless. And so Sherry, if you can come. Um, and so why waiting? <laughs> we hate to wait. We wish we had the answer now. Um, and when it comes to waiting, we have that, it, it, many times we have to wait because there is that unsolvable problem. And so let's put it back up, that unsolvable problem. It doesn't make any sense. It can't be solved by any one of you. And same thing with the problems in our life. It can't be solved by us. We can't fix things that are out of our control. What you have to know is you have to know the one who knows the variables. Because, see, I know the variables. And so the answer is very easy. It's Austin and Nicole equals Caden, Sophia. They're twins, so they're in the parentheses together. And then Aaliyah. And that's their middle initials. Caden, Daniel, Sophia, Brielle, and Aaliyah, Noel. 
You couldn't have solved that. But I knew the variables. And so I'm able to solve that for you. And I am able to show you what the answer is. And in our life, when we are going through problems that are unsolvable, the result has to do with us trusting the one who knows the variables. Who knows those things that we can't explain, that we can't see. Who knows that next step that we don't know that's coming up. but he will reveal them when he's ready. And so our our focus is to pour out our heart to God, to let him know our frustration when there's a problem that we can't solve, to focus on what we know is true, who God is, and then wait. Wait patiently, wait worshipfully, and wait confidently. You see, it's our choice. Are we gonna trust him? or not trust him. It's the choice that we have to make. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, that you have made it very clear that you're not going to tell us everything. And it's frustrating for us to know because we want to rely on our own knowledge, on our own abilities to be able to accomplish the things that we feel we need to. But Lord, You have purposefully chosen to not reveal all the variables because you desire for us to trust you, to not know and be okay with not knowing because you're the God who knows and you're the God who will do what you have called us to do. You will do in our lives what you want to happen. And we can trust you that you're good, that you're holy, that you want to have a personal relationship with us. So Lord, we thank you for your truth. Please challenge us this week to trust you better.